0: Hello, everyone. My name is HR McMaster, the Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Hoover Capital Conversations. Capital Conversations is an ongoing series featuring discussions between those who generate the ideas that enable a free society and those who turn them into actionable policy. We invite you to listen and participate in discussions between our issue experts and policymakers as they consider solutions to some of our most difficult problems. Today, we have the great privilege to talk to Congressman Mark Green. As part of the discussion, we'll be taking audience questions, and I encourage you to please submit yours at the question and answer button located at the bottom of your screen. And so I'd like to begin with the introduction of Congressman, Congressman Green. Uh, real privilege to have you here. Mark Green is a successful business leader, a decorated combat veteran, a, an emergency room physician, and a former state senator. He represents the 7th District of the great state of Tennessee. He graduated from West Point in the class of 1986. uh, And in his time serving in the United States Armed Forces, uh, you know, he became aware of the need for strong American leadership internationally, and he's became focused on the the threat to China and the threat that China poses uh, to, to future generations of Americans. Representative Green has introduced five bills to hold China accountable to compete more effectively with China, including the Our Money in China Transparency Act, the Bring American Companies Home Act, the Protecting Federal Networks Act, the Secure Our Systems Against China's Tactics Act, the China Technologically Transfer Control Act, as well. So, our conversation today focuses, though, on his work for his next bill to address Chinese influence. In the Western Hemisphere, the Nearshoring Act. And in Congress, I should mention that Congressman Green serves on the House Committee on Armed Services, the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, and he's the ranking member of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Civilian Security, Migration, and International Economic Policy, a, a very busy person and representative on, Congressman Hill, uh, on, on, on uh, Capitol Hill. Congressman Green, hey, welcome, welcome to Hoover. We're really excited to have this conversation with you today, and, and thanks for your service in, in many different capacities.
1: Well, thanks, HR, and thanks to you as well. Not, not only uh, you know, your service in the military, which was uh, phenomenal, but, but what you're doing now just to educate not only Americans, but folks like ourselves that are in trying to make a difference. I uh, really appreciate Hoover and, and, and your work there.
0: Well, Mark, it's it's so great to see you. I, I think we have to begin just based on what's happening in the world today. I'd love to hear your reaction uh, to the catastrophe we see unfolding in in Afghanistan, a place where we've both spent some time and we know Afghan people well. We fought alongside uh, the Afghan arm, armed forces. Can you just share your, your reaction uh, before we get into the main topic of discussion?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks for, for that question. I um, obviously, like most veterans who served in Afghanistan, my emotions have been a roller coaster the past several um, you know, days from frustration. I want to go grab my kit and go downrange and, and try to save friends that are stranded on the other side of the perimeter to uh, sadness uh knowing what's happening now to the country, particularly women. Um You know, I think this is an epic failure, uh, probably the biggest failure in American foreign policy since the Bay of Pigs. And I think it's bigger than that. Um, But uh, it's a tactical failure. It's a strategic failure. If you look at it tactically, I mean, why are we in one airfield trying to get everybody out? Why not two or three? That would spread the Taliban. Uh, It would uh, give us more airfields. Uh, You know, the flow rate, it's like a pipeline. You know uh, so there's tactical failures there's strategic failures now look at our allies what is taiwan thinking right now we know what china's thinking they've already made that pretty clear with their threats uh it's just uh it's very sad um and uh i hope i hope the congress will honestly drill into this thing uh and not just make it like much of the oversight meetings in the past for example COVID. You know, that oversight committee has never looked at the origins of the virus and refuses to. So hopefully it'll be a legitimate oversight. And we can dig in and find out what we need to do better next time.
0: Well, thanks, Margaret. I, I appreciate that. I, I do think that there is this growing sentiment towards almost a neo-isolationist sentiment in the country that has been driving this kind of mantra to end endless wars. But I, I think what we're seeing now is that you know losing wars have consequences and and, uh, and, and, uh, and these consequences have profound effects on, on Americans as well. I think it's a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's, it's also a political, as you mentioned, and, and a security uh, catastrophe as, as, as well. And this, I think, helps us maybe bridge into the topic of, of China. I know that you, you, know, you, you represent your constituents, you know, and, and I think that's what motivates you in, in this competition, and, uh, and especially with the bills you've introduced, could you maybe explain why you think they're important to your constituents and what you had in mind as you embarked on not only this particular piece of legislation, but a range of legislation aimed at competing more effectively with China?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's somewhat difficult on some levels to, to understand what Xi Jinping and the current leadership want, but, but some things are very clear. And uh, they're not going to operate within the rules-based international order. And they have a desire to displace the United States. And those are those are pretty much stated goals. And the impact on my constituents are their their freedom. You know, you bring a Chinese company into the state of Tennessee, and they have legal requirements to report data to their government to their communist government. Um, the impact of being able to have freedom of navigation and you know take manufactured goods, particularly in my state, agricultural products, and ship them all over the world, uh, That that's obviously a threat with uh, what's happening in China. And then just general instability, um, whether it be in Latin America with what's happening in Honduras and Nicaragua and Venezuela, uh, to the threat in, to Taiwan. Uh, and so, you know, overall, 100,000 foot impact as well as, you know, that, that trade, so and
0: you know in 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 our in our neighborhood in our hemispheric neighborhood China's been very active right across Latin America and the Caribbean in particular you know trade has increased more than 20 fold right with China uh, over the last decade and and overtook US trade uh, and and investment too in, in key in key countries you know like Brazil Chile and Peru and so between 2005 and 2020 China invested nearly 200 billion dollars in Latin America I think in, in what was clearly an attempt to expand into new markets obtain natural resources but also to gain influence in the region. There's no and doubt. Uh, and and you know and of course of course they're active in, in Latin America's illicit economies. So what, what's your view on what China is doing what they're trying to achieve in the western hemisphere uh, in Latin America and what do you think's at stake you know for for Americans in this in this new development?
1: So for us, it, again, sort of looking at at the satellite or the hundred thousand foot view, the Chinese want to displace our alliances. Um, if you look at how the world has progressed throughout history, it, it it sort of goes through what I call the polarity cycle, where after a big war, there's exhaustion and people make agreements, and and you have multipolarity based on the agreements. Most people try to adhere to those agreements. But very quickly, balance of power politics takes over and those countries that can't keep up with the main powers align. And over time, those alliances increase and you get to bipolarity from multipolarity to bipolarity. And then when there's bipolarity, there tends to be a great conflict. Um, and you can go all the way back to Westphalia and, and, and trace that through all the major wars. Um we are emerging from a unique point in history when there was a unipolar, uh, the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union, to a bipolar world. And so the competition for alliances is on. The One Belt, One Road Initiative, or the Belt and Road Initiative, and I appreciate your insistence on calling it the One Belt, One Road Initiative, um, is China's strategic effort to displace our alliances. And their, whether it's their... Um, you know, debt diplomacy, or now their medical diplomacy in Latin America with the vaccine. Um, their strategic goal is to take our alliances from us um, and to create relationships where people are dependent upon them and not us. So that's happening all across Latin America. You can layer that in with the malign activity with Venezuela and their support for Venezuela and Cuba, and what a lot this this overall trend in Latin America from um, democracy to sort of authoritarian governments. You know, we just had recent elections in Peru and that were very disappointing. So um, China is behind that. Um, and so we have a great interests in maintaining uh, deep relationships with our friends to the South.
0: You know, I think I think you're framing this as a competition is really important because it seems like we we vacated. Competitive arenas under this assumption that we would remain, as you, as you alluded to, kind of the unipolar power, and would go unchallenged. Remember the last time we talked, I was calling you from Panama, a country in which we have not had a U.S. ambassador for over four years, right? I mean, how is that possible? And uh, and and um, and so I, it was a real privilege for our research team to work with your staff on aspects of this bill and. And I'd like you to maybe share with our, our viewers, you know, what do you hope the bill will accomplish in terms of restoring our ability to compete effectively uh, in, in the hemisphere?
1: Yeah, well, there are several problems that became glaringly obvious to me when I became the ranking Republican on you know on Western Hemisphere, which is Latin America and, and the Caribbean and, of course, uh, Canada. But when China began its rapid growth, created a commodity boom that deeply, that increased the value of the currencies in Latin America and led to basically a situation where in Latin America, it was cheaper to buy Chinese made goods than to manufacture them themselves. So this massive loss in jobs and opportunity in the manufacturing sector. Um, Of course, COVID uh, has shown the world that we're too dependent on China, uh, whether it's PPE or uh, pharmaceutical precursors or whatever it is, so that there's that problem. Of course, the decrease in jobs in Latin America has led to push factors out of those countries and this overwhelming crisis at the border, uh, coupled with very bad decisions by the current president. So you've got you've got a decrease in opportunity in Latin America resulting in pressure on our southern border. Um, and this world dependence on Chinese manufacturing, all of which need to be addressed. So those are, I want to address all of those issues. And sort of a side effect, I'd love to provide with this bill the opportunity for state and our other foreign policy organizations to have a, a tool in their, an arrow in their quiver, so to speak, to influence those countries that are sort of drifting toward authoritarianism. And so, I think this bill does all four of those things.
0: Hey, can you describe how how does the bill address those challenges, and uh, and 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 how are you going to provide resources, and and what what are some of these tools that you're hoping to provide, uh, the the the, uh, the second branch of government, and 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 what do you think Congress's role will be in implementing uh, the the aspects of the bill?
1: Sure. So we have uh, a lot of aid organizations and a lot of taxpayer dollars that go to those. I'm you know a conservative guy so i want to try to make sure that any taxpayer dollar that gets spent is accomplishing its objective but we there's also this organization out there called the development finance corporation and that organization leverages private investment dollars so the money actually being utilized is from private investors doesn't come from the taxpayer what we want to do is move manufacturing from china to Preferably the U.S. and you mentioned one of my other bills about bring our uh, manufacturing home, bring our businesses home. That bill deals with bringing them to the United States, but many of the you know uh, business models of these companies, the cost of labor doesn't allow for them to to come to the United States. So uh, let's let's bring them to Latin America and and create opportunity there. Uh, so what we've done is created a set of loans through the Development Finance Corporation. Again, private dollars that the interest rate would be purchased down or bought down by tariff money that's currently being collected from uh, you know, trade with China. So the investor is made whole, the, the borrower gets a significantly reduced rate loan to move to Latin America. So the, the company has to be manufacturing in China, China can't be a, a state-owned entity, Um, it can't be a a company located in, in, in an adversary. So Russia manufacturing there would not qualify for this. Um, and then that company moves to Latin America sets up shop and the other benefit to that business, because the business is obviously, you know, I've run a company. So I, I, I understand what a balance sheet is that that's a balance sheet hit for them with the loan. So to offset that, we're going to grant them 15 years of, uh, free trade with the United States. So that's the incentive for the business to come to Latin America, create opportunity there. And with that opportunity, decrease pressure on our Southern border. In the bill, we put some criteria and we got this, some of these ideas from the State Department. Uh, and I've been working with Bill uh, Blinken and all his uh, undersecretaries that, that have responsibility there. And, and, and it is for a country to qualify for this uh, to happen in their country they have to meet certain criteria. So now the State Department has another sort of tool in their quiver, leverage point with these countries that want to drift toward authoritarianism. You have to have free elections, you have to have you know, law and order, you have to be working to fix migration issues and a, a, a whole set of criteria. So you know, it's, uh, and that's how we accomplish all four of, of those wins.
0: You know, you know, for those who are kind of keeping track at home of all the legislation that's going out in China, right? There's a lot of it, right? And, is, and you, you have the Strategic Act, you have the CHIPS Act, you have the Endless Frontiers Act. And could, would you mind just, just describing how this bill fits in, right, to the whole panel plea now of, which I'm glad to see, actually, uh, but yeah. chi- China-related uh, legislation and, and, and legislative proposals?
1: So this bill is unique in that it focuses on nearshoring to Latin America. Um, and it is targeting a very select, well, not very select, but, but a specific group of manufacturing in China. And um, no other bill is doing that. And there are a lot of other bills that, that address the issues, whether it's uh, you know, Huawei or buying land next to military installations um, in the United States. This is specific to nearshoring. the The reason I think there's a chance that this bill gets passed is it focuses on the push factors of migration. So my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, who are very sensitive to the problems at the southern border, but don't feel like they can get involved with, you know, addressing the pull factors, they're very motivated to, to address the push factors. And so, uh, you know, guys like 11 and uh, others have come to me and said, Hey, I really want to be a part of this. This, this makes sense. My guys on my side of the aisle, like the fact that it's private dollars and not public dollars that are, uh, that are being spent for, for the loans. Um, So I I think we've got a chance to actually get something passed that could make a big difference for, for our country and for our friends to the South.
0: Hey, well, for everybody, if you're just joining us, I'm Hoover Senior Fellow, HR McMaster. This is Hoover's Capital Conversations with Congressman Mark Green. Hey, we'll be taking questions shortly, so please submit yours at the Q&A button at the bottom of, of your screen. Hey, Congressman Green, I, I think what you're doing is trying to provide positive incentives, right? And I think that's gonna be welcome in Latin America. When I talk to friends in the region, I often say, you know, hey, how are we doing? You know, what how are we doing in this, in this competition with China? But just overall in terms of our relationships, what I often hear is, hey, when Americans talk to us, they're always talking to us about problems, right? It's always about, you know, transnational organized crime or, I mean, real problems, you know, sure. narcotics trafficking and so forth. And and, and so when, when China comes, they're talking about, you know, investment. And they, they were coming with duffel bags full of cash, you know, and, and they said, we wish we could have more conversations with our American friends about opportunities. So what I'd like to do is you alluded to this a little bit already. There's a big competition, I think, going on across the hemisphere, right? You have you have uh, you have the Lopez Obrador government in Mexico that is trying out hugs, not bullets, with narcotics traffickers. Not working out really well. He has a, a he has a philosophy that is is not you know, very business uh, and free market friendly. You have uh, Ortega doubling down uh, on, on his authoritarian regime in in Nicaragua. Yeah, he's still kicking around there. You have a strange kind of cult of personality in, in El Salvador. You, you had recent big protests in Costa Rica, right, because of the cutting of government uh, subsidies. You have an election coming up in Colombia against the backdrop of major protests and popular discontent there. You mentioned uh, the outcome of, you know, just elected a Marxist, you know, in in Peru, you have a constitutional rewrite going on in Chile. Yeah. Bolsonaro you know, seems like he's, he's got a less and less of a grip on power. Yeah. Argentina's already moved left in the in the last election. Okay, it looks to me like we're losing ground, but there's some bright spots, right? Okay, you could say Ecuador, Bolivia moved in in, in a better direction. So, would you mind as as we transition in, into the questions from you know our audience here and I've got one more for you as well at the end. Uh, uh, before as we transition, you know, what's your overall assessment of the trends in, in the hemisphere and what more can we do about about uh, Trying to foster, you know, a, a better, you know, a better future uh, for generations of uh, of Americans, and I mean South Americans, Central Americans, North Americans to come.
1: Well, I, I am concerned about this, uh, you know, malign influence of China. I'm, I am very much concerned about how that's impacting the uh, metastasis of what Maduro is doing in Venezuela throughout the uh, both, you know, Central and South America, um, and and so you know, the fact that Peru voted in a Marxist, much like Venezuela did, you know, with Chavez, um, that's very concerning. What Ortega is doing is very concerning. Um, so, overall, there's this trend toward authoritarianism. Much of the issues in Colombia are exported from Venezuela, uh, and not just by the refugees that have fled from Venezuela, but by malign activity from uh, you know, Venezuela propping up some of the other organizations as well as narco-terrorism. As right. well and
0: then, as, you, then you could trace that back to Cuba, right, who support exactly. that as well. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And,
1: and that was, you know, I was going to comment about bright spots. You know, there are bright spots. One major bright spot is the recent, I don't want to call it uprising, but sentiment and protests that have been going on in Cuba. There's a real hope there that, this generation is going to stand up to the uh, totalitarianism of, of the, I still call it the Castro regime, but the, I mean, it is essentially a continuation of it. So I think there's with the images of that, you take that to the rest of Latin America and say, look, no one wants what Cuba is exporting. Um, maybe, maybe we have a chance. What we need is on our side, particularly from our president to to recognize what's going on in Cuba and support what's happening.
0: Well, and you know, I think what's great about this bill is it addresses some of the economic uh, incentives that could maybe help grow economies and and hopefully address kind of the grave concerns about income disparity, inequality of of income that are also, I think, providing you know fertile ground you know for those uh, who want to advance kind of leftist uh, and and uh, statist uh, economic ideologies and so forth you know I, I you know some of the critics though you know this is you know this is the institution of Milton Friedman so i've got to, i've got to ask you this mark you know some some uh, critics are, are worried about the erosion of market incentives with this they they're wary you know there some people are wary of the dfc uh, they they they're, they're worried that that what if we uh, don't prioritize countries with sound economic and fiscal policies and we waste our efforts some are concerned about tariffs right tariffs on I know tariffs on Chinese products are meant to pay for a lot of the uh, of this bill, and then then some are even concerned that there might be like a bidding war, right, between China uh, and the U.S. with this this kind of uh, these kind of incentives, and and then you have U.S. taxpayers trying to up the ante, right, against uh, Chinese national banks, for example. So uh, I know you've heard these criticisms, and that you've been you and your staff have been open to them because you want to anticipate them and address them in the bill. Could you just say a few words about those that are wary uh, about really anything that looks like, you know, industrial policy or something that could distort uh, free market incentives.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are very few uh, folks who are more free market than I am. I, I'm. You can look at my uh, voting record, and you can look at my uh, voting record as a Tennessee state senator and the bills that I supported there. At the same time. I'm also a national security guy. I'm on armed services and I'm on foreign affairs because the security of America is probably my greatest concern. Warfare is no longer 100 uh, percent kinetic. I mean, we you know, what's happening in Ukraine, what China is doing to, to take allies from us. Uh, I love the paradigm, the dying paradigm, diplomatic uh, informational, military, and economic warfare. If you look at China, what it did to Motorola when it went into China, um, they basically stole their secrets, developed Huawei, and put Motorola, a U.S. company, out of business, costing thousands of jobs, billions off of our gross domestic product, which fuels our ability to take care of ourselves and our military. So we're we're engaged in we'll call it competition, but you know, it is desperate. It is critical. And it's going to require us to be as innovative as we possibly can in the markets in order to um, to compete. And so the Development Finance Corp, I like it because it's private dollars. Now, granted, we we have the tariffs with China. Um, and I, I, I've never been a fan of tariffs, but I, I am for fair trade. And I'm not... I'm not sure China's been uh, cooperative there. So as long as the tariffs are in place, let's use that money to uh, incentivize folks to move from China, decrease our dependency on them, take back the allies that we have in Latin America, create opportunity and help our national security issue at our southern border. So I see it as a a national security thing. I'm trying to use conservative mechanisms to do it. And I understand that there'll be a few people that um, are concerned about that, but I want the feedback. You know, we, we are sending the bill to all of the conservative think tanks and free market folks and getting their input. We'll make changes. We haven't dropped the bill yet because we expect that feedback uh, to make it a better bill.
0: And, and, you know, I know that the phrase that Bob Lighthizer would always use is, is reciprocal free fair and reciprocal. And That's good. Work. And then he would emphasize, you know, the, the need to employ your know, trade enforcement mechanisms to get back, you know, to reciprocal trade arrangements. You know, Hey, there's, there's a question on Panama where we just last talked to you from, and you know, Panama is a small country in terms of population, but man, it, it can punch above its weight. It's a connector to the world. And, and so uh, Edgardo uh, is asking a question about Panama being historically important, obviously to the U S and, and the Western hemisphere. And, and China knows that too. And so, what what do you recommend on, on Panama in particular? The what more could we do uh, to compete effectively there, and you know, to continue to strengthen it was it was already kind of a, a strong relationship economically and diplomatically with Panama.
1: There's a a, a lot of things that we can do. Uh, you know, of course, this bill that we've talked about during the show uh, would would of course apply to Panama. That 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 country would clearly qualify for those. Uh, uh, you know, nearshoring uh, companies, um, I, you know, HR, you mentioned it at the very beginning, we don't have an ambassador. I mean, just basic diplomatic relationships need to need to be improved because friendships are about, I mean, I, my, my relationship with my wife, I don't get time where they you know, the, the relationship needs work. So uh, we, we've got to, we've got to address that piece of it. Um, and I think militarily, you know, we need to do a, a lot more joint stuff militarily with with our Latin American partners in Panama is is probably one of the best uh, partners in that regard. So um, you know, we, we removed a lot of our forces from there, removed our uh, southern command and all that stuff. But just continuing those relationships would be very important.
0: Hey, we're we're getting a number of questions about how we compete more effectively, you know, in, in the commercial space in the private sector. Uh, you know, uh, Paul is asking about uh, what are we doing to to battle Chinese influence, you know, in the corporate world, right? We've seen the coercion of you know, the NBA and Marriott and yeah. Nike and 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 others, and and uh, and and there's there are questions related questions about you know ESG, right, the environmental, social, governance issues. Why isn't China like an ESG uh, issue? Uh, and then Bodie, who I think might might be close to you there in, in Tennessee, uh, has asked you know what uh, you know what do you see in, in Tennessee in terms of, of Chinese influence and what is the degree to which you know, we're talking about obviously Chinese influence in in our hemisphere and in Latin America in particular, uh, but but what do you see operating in terms of Chinese influence in the U.S. So some related questions from Bodie and and Paul. Uh, about influence uh, in the corporate world and in the United States in particular.
1: So let me address the Tennessee piece of that first. Tennessee had, um, like many states, put an economic development office in, I think it was in Shanghai. We may have had two different cities. And our current governor, you know, debated about whether or not to close that and, and whether or not we push to bring Chinese companies to Tennessee. We we talked to him, Mike Pompeo, my West Point classmate, talked to him and Governor Lee decided to close those offices and uh, not pursue, uh, you know, using economic development dollars from Tennessee to recruit Chinese businesses. And it was it's really all all because of their and their security acts, which require data from Chinese companies to be shared with the Communist Party. Um, So in Tennessee, I think we're taking a good, good path. Um, Other bills that are out there right now that are attempting to address this, uh, Chip Roy has a great bill about land purchases by the Chinese, you know, Chinese, uh, large Chinese companies, um, especially state owned enterprises. There was an issue with a wind farm down there connecting to the power grid and Texans voted no and kept that from happening. But, um, there are multiple bills on, on sort of that piece of it and their, their influence inside the United States, um, internationally or well, corporately, I think was the other part of the question. We've got bills on intellectual property theft, uh, cyber security, and all of those things that sort of protect our company. Our companies are really vulnerable because, you know, in the United States, we approach cyber as a, a public as a private, uh, not public responsibilities. So the government is responsible for its own networks, but companies are responsible for their own. Whereas China does just the opposite. So they, they protect everybody with the great firewall of China and other, other tools, which interestingly enough, are probably more directed toward their own citizens. But, um, there are several bills that are trying to address that. What, what we need is, uh, people to communicate with both sides of the aisle the urgency to get some of these bills passed. Um, And with help from the people of our country pushing particularly the opposite side of the aisle to me, um, we can hopefully get some of these bills passed. If you go and look at the China Task Force report from the last Congress, there's a list of probably a couple of hundred bills that need to happen to particularly the malign stuff like IP theft and cyber from China.
0: So we had these questions now about influence in the U.S. as well. And now there's a broader question to take us out of the, our own hemisphere, but to look globally. And, and you know, John uh, has, has pointed out that there's, you know, there's a naval base in Djibouti, you know, for example, around the, the, around the corner from our, our camp there, yeah. Camp Lemonnier. And uh, and so what he's asking is is overall, what's your assessment of the strategic implications of their presence there? But I would also ask you maybe to place into context what China's doing in Latin America, what they're doing in Djibouti on the south side of the Bob el Deb, and and in a broader context of what they're trying to achieve uh, in connection with uh, global logistics networks and communications networks uh, globally.
1: I, I think my biggest concern and, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, that, that's a book in and of itself, that question, but, um, is our, you know, choke points in the seas, uh, particularly the way they're, they're controlling ports, some through their debt diplomacy, some through just their state-owned enterprises, uh, taking control of ports, um, you know, obviously places like the Straits of Malacca and all of these sort of choke points for, for trade and for, shipping on the ocean, the, the South China Sea, that's probably my number one concern, but the commodity extraction, the uh, manipulation, uh, what they're doing in Africa is what soon, I mean, that's what's coming for Latin America. So if you look at um, what they've done in Africa, that, that is the same model that they're using in Latin America. And that is debt diplomacy, uh, building infrastructure projects that fail, and then, like Ecuador, require a huge portion of their, um, you know, commodities to offset the inability to pay for those loans. So, um, I've, what happened in Africa is happening in Latin America. But again, I think the bigger concern is more uh, the ports and the control of shipping.
0: Just to give you a heads up, we're getting a lot of questions on Taiwan. But first, yeah. first, what I'd like to do is is uh, is, is ask you about. Uh, about the hemisphere again and you know of course what we're doing now has to be placed in historical context and Ken is asking a question about our long and complicated history of interventions uh, in South and Central America how do we build trust and then he's asked the, the related question the obvious one that you know, China's coming into these regions without that baggage a clean slate right how do you see us uh, competing with China really on on the you know the, the informational psychological emotional, you know, battleground, so to speak, uh, with, uh, with China?
1: So I, I would submit that uh, most Latin American countries are, are pretty wide-eyed about what China does. Uh, there have been plenty of ac- examples in the region, but there are also many, many examples, you know, in Africa. So when I talk to ambassadors, and I had dinner with the, uh, uh, the ambassador of Argentina just recently, um, I'll be in Brazil in a week, uh, the All of these guys know what China is doing, and they're doing their best to mitigate it. Also, uh, and someone asked, I think, in a previous question about the environmental damage that China is causing in Latin America with its infrastructure projects. There is a, a renewed push to try to address those issues from those governments because they recognize you know, that that's a loss of a resource and, of course, has a global impact.
0: Um, and, and it's just really about, you know, our, our historical, you know, oh, baggage uh, there, you know, oh, the, uh, from the yeah. age of uh, in, intervention, you know, uh, you know, or, early, early 20th century and so forth.
1: You know, we, we have got to address our Latin America's uh, neighbors as partners and not as, uh, you know, in a paternalistic kind of way. Um, I think they're very sensitive to this past history that's been alluded to or, or, mentioned um, because we have in the past sort of
0: um, it was sort of a, i think it was what some historians have described it as swinging be, be, you know, between uh, you know, the old sort of benign neglect and pragmatic intervention right without no, a, without weird. really a, with really like a without a sustained approach to the region
1: yeah we need to build partnerships and because you take for example Argentina that now has a Chinese listening station. Um, Argentina that has uh, some weapons relationships with Russia. How
0: about a a space, a space uh, launching facility as well in Argentina, right?
1: It's just, Uh. yeah. What's what we, we can't treat them like they, they owe us because we're the, we're the larger economy or the larger military force. We, we need to be partners and there's some sticky issues with particularly Argentina, you know, over the Falklands and, and our relationship with the UK and all that has to be taken, but that's more like uh, the third cup of tea. Um, we need to have the first cup of tea with these countries and be partners and not uh, paternalistic.
0: Okay. Well, we're, we're coming up on time. There's so many great questions here, but there are a lot on Taiwan. So before I give you kind of a final Word on our hemisphere as we wrap up. I'd like you to maybe address the issue of Taiwan. And there are a number a number of questions. Uh, uh, Tim wants to know what, what do you think our policy ought to be uh, on, on on the protection of of Taiwan. Uh, you know, John wants to know what what are your expectations. What do you think China uh, China is planning uh, in, in connection with a, a military move or other actions against Taiwan? And again, the question of you know how we, we would we respond. Uh, to it, and then uh, and then and then and then Jane wants to know: Is there a connection between what you're recommending with this bill and any tools that might be used to secure uh, Taiwan's um, uh, consolidate Taiwan's allies in the Western Hemisphere? Strengthen- yeah,
1: no, that's. I'm glad that that question was asked because in the bill we specifically state that for a country to uh, be uh, a country that can bring these companies back to to be a near shore company country, they have to recognize Taiwan. So that's, that's written into the bill uh, again is, you know, addressing this larger issue of what China's doing. I'll just
0: just point out the critics will say that we haven't done that, you know, because of, of, uh, you know of, of the Taiwan Relations Act and the agreement. The, you know, goes back, back to the seventies. But you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I I'm all for it. But it's just it might be a tough sell, is all I'm saying, Mark. Uh,
1: no, I know I got you. <laughs> I that completely. The, the the challenge to us uh, is, you know that that strategic ambiguity has been the strategy for such a long time, and we ha- I think it's worked. The problem now is Xi Jinping has made this personal for himself, and he's so much more of an authoritarian. He's taken China in another direction than uh, previous. Now, there are arguments out there that say this has been the plan all along. But, um, you know, clearly, what just happened in Afghanistan uh, is going to empower China. Uh, And I would have answered the question before this debacle, that with the strength of the Taiwanese military, with some ambiguity about what the United States' response would be. And, uh, you know, our international partners are now recognizing that if they were to invade Taiwan uh, militarily, uh, you know, that all of those would be a detractor to Beijing. But now I think all, a lot of that is in question. Um, We have shown our current president to be incredibly weak on the international stage. Um, And I think Beijing, I mean, hopefully hopefully they, they don't take uh, advantage of this, but um, I will tell you that I think Taiwan has its own uh, super strengths. Uh, we just sold them $750 million worth of howitzers, um, and there was a very interesting article today about their response to that. They, they are doing some special training just across the Straits, but uh, the Chinese are. Um, but I think, I think Taiwan is in a, in a strong place. We just need to continue to support them as we are. I think strategic ambiguity, if, if anything, might need some more clarification after Afghanistan uh, and the withdrawal uh, debacle. But other than that, I think just strengthening our posture in the Indo-Pacific, um, making sure that with hypersonics, we can counter some of the advances that, that make China near peer in those areas. Uh, we've got to get smart on, on how we do freedom of uh, navigation operations, but we must continue to do those. Um, we need to, with China, figure out some things that we can do together, whether it's the environment or, or health, because we can't just, the, the old Cold War paradigm, the way we, we took on the USSR is not going to be the right solution. We've got to increase dialogue. We've got to talk. There are some great ideas. Uh, Richard Haas, uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, has a has a concept he's introdu- introduced that's akin to the concert of Europe, where uh, uh, five to, to eight countries just get together and dialogue on a, on a periodic basis. All those things are good ideas. Push back where we, where we need to push back, make our our economies uh, resistant to malign activity. Um, and, and, and just uh, I know I'm running out of time and, and, but um, those are some of the things we can do.
0: Yeah. And I think the term trans transparent competition is a, is a useful one uh, in connection with, with, uh, with China. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough. I'd just like to offer you a last word before I, I, I thank you and wrap this up at the end. Any, any last words about the bill and your efforts there, or, I mean, how, how Hoover can, can help you or, or any, any final thoughts? Well, I want to
1: thank Hoover, of course, for providing some of the, uh, you know, learned materials on what China is doing in, in Latin America. You guys really helped us and that helped us frame the bill. Um, I think if I if I could just take a second and digress, uh, any veterans who are listening, uh, veterans particularly of Afghanistan, I want to say thank you for your service. And I want to say um, that your service was not in vain, that for 20 years you've Bought the freedom of the United States from a terrorist attack. Um, every sacrifice that was made had value. And uh, if there are any that are struggling with this issue, they should contact my office um, and organizations like Reboot Recovery. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that out there.
0: No, it's, that's an important message. And I'd like to echo it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Congressman Green, for for your time with us today on behalf of Condoleezza Rice and our great director and former Secretary of State. I want to thank you for your time and a a great conversation. And for all those who joined us, thank you, especially. You can learn more about this series at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. For more on China, go to the amazing uh, China Global Sharp Power Project uh, that that Hoover is running. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. And I hope you'll tune back in for future conversations. Thank you. Mm -hmm.